we will quite literally this morning be going through pretty much <clears throat> the entire Bible. So we have a lot to do. If you'll join me, we're going to begin in the book of Genesis. The title of my sermon this morning is Restoration, All Things New. We're in the final section of a three-part series on life together. And we are discussing the mission, mission of the church, mission of the people of God. So this morning we are talking about restoration. The key words for our worshipers and training are mercy, restore, and new. That's what I was thinking about this idea of restoration. I had a lot of various things come to mind. Most vivid to me was the thought of uh, when in 2004, I saw the ruins of the ancient city of Nineveh, which is located in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. I thought about what the Bible says about the city of Nineveh. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, this great, mighty, noble empire. They were very powerful, teeming with life, and to the Assyrians, it seemed indestructible. They probably figured they would go on forever and ever and eventually end up ruling the world. And they certainly tried to do that. And as I was there, looking at the walls and the ruins, I thought how beautiful it must have been. All the walls, what the houses would have looked like, all of the gardens that would have been there in the midst of desert lands. Well, then I thought about Jonah. Jonah going into the city of Nineveh after a a long wrestling match of sorts with God to keep himself from going. And he eventually goes and calls the city of Nineveh to repentance because of their evil. And God grants from the top down repentance from the king to the lowliest of servants. But then I thought about how Only about 150 years later, you see in the book of Nahum, around 612 B.C., that the Babylonian army completely destroyed the city of Nineveh because of their evil and wicked deeds. And now, here we are about 2,600 years later, and all that stands is a few walls in the midst of a war-torn society. Sort of in the same way as you drive through old neighborhoods. I like to drive through old neighborhoods sometimes and look at old broken down houses and think about what did this used to be? I think of my own home sometimes and what it will be in 50 or 100 years. But then I like to think of these old places and think what could it be? It's like restoring old pieces of furniture or, or classic cars. I wonder, what could become of that old, broken, dilapidated house? What could become of that car with the weeds growing up around it that doesn't run and hasn't for years? There's something very beautiful about restoration, isn't there? 
I think this is why we instinctively love to see things like extreme home makeovers and vintage cars and whatever else you can watch on Discovery or TLC about old things becoming new. It's in the hearts of men because it is in the heart and the work of God all around us to restore, to bring newness to all things. Restoration is the act of returning something to its former unimpaired condition. So the work of restoration is moving toward the former in a way that reestablishes and even improves upon what once was something better than it currently is. So we see this all throughout the Bible. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see the unfolding of what God does in creation. And it's very clear throughout these passages that God loved what He did in creation, as it's outlined in chapter 1. He decided to have, He loved it so much, He decides to have Moses write about it all over again in chapter 2. So chapter 2 of Genesis is a detailed retelling of chapter 1. Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 2. And we're not going to read the whole creation account. I think it's familiar to most, if not all of us. But in chapter 2 of Genesis, beginning in verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God has given a very clear command to Adam as he is in the garden. And then we read in beginning in verse 18, the Lord sees Adam, He sees what He's doing, working the garden, and He sees that Adam needs a helper. We read in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what He would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So we have a picture of Adam in the garden and God is bringing all of the created animals to him and he's giving them Names And in the midst of this, he's longing for a helper. There is something in him that says, I need a helper. God sees this need within Adam as he's zebra, giraffe, armadillo, cockroach, snake. None of them fit for him as helpers. Then the Lord God said, excuse me, that, um, so the Lord... Uh, Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God has taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then, I think this is funny, the man's naming all these animals, 
Sort of this humdrum thing. And then all of a sudden, he, he bursts into poetry. He sees the woman. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He gets it. <laughs> Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So we see in creation, all is perfect. There's no death. There's no destruction. There's no shame. There's no arguing. There's no bickering. There's no he said, she said. There's none of it. It's perfect rhythm between God, man, woman, all of creation. Then what happens? About nine seconds later, we see the first instance of what we've been doing ever since. Chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. When you start a sentence like that, you know something terrible is coming. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is the same question that's at the root of all of our sins, right? Did God really say? Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What's the problem with her statement? God did not say, Do not touch the tree. He said, Do not eat of the tree. And ever since this time, we've sought to redefine God's law, just as Eve has done to add to and take away. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so here we see man ignoring his responsibility to lead his wife. He is passive. He allows this to go on and in fact partakes right alongside And then we see in verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How foolish! But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so foolishly, they're running from God as though He doesn't know where to find them. And He calls out Adam. He knows his sin. And so what does Adam do? He confesses and repents, right? No, he blames his wife. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. 
So man blames woman and also blames God. It's your fault. We hear that all the time, right? If she would just do this, or if she didn't do that. I know none of our men have said those sorts of things, but it is common. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. No responsibility. And so we see curses from God. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And ever since then, we have imitated our parents, Adam and Eve. And we do the same stupid things with the same stupid results. So we see this perfect rhythm between God and man and creation is all fractured in a single moment by a single sin. And it not only tears the fabric between God and man, but also between man and woman and man and all of creation. So the result is brokenness. Brokenness in relationships between husbands and wives and friendships and neighbors. And taking things that were made for good and pleasure and using them in sinful ways. Taking food. Becoming a glutton. Taking drink. Becoming a drunkard. Taking sex. And looking to lust and fornication. And on and on and on. Taking all that God has created for our good and turning it to evil. And the most heinous of all is that we have assumed God to be a personal genie that we get to laugh at and mock and spit upon and dishonor and ignore and curse against and in the end think we, we can go to Him and He just needs to deal with it. Because we get to decide who goes to heaven and hell based on the criteria of our own making. Now, this all points to something very clear. How much of creation fell? All of it. Every last bit of it. And it seems bleak and it seems hopeless. But I want you to see something in the midst of all of this. Genesis 3.15. We read right through it. Let's look at it again. God is cursing the serpent. 
And he says, I will put enmity between you, interestingly, he says, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is God talking about? Jesus. I'll put enmity between you and his mother. He will come. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. The cross. And so the very beginning of the Bible, in the midst of this curse, God offers hope and restoration. We call this the Proto-Evangelium. The first mention of the Gospel in the Bible. And from this point forward, the rest of the Bible is about God in relationship to sinful man and how God is working to bring about great restoration through a specific people because of the perfect obedience of a specific man who just so happens to be God Himself. And it's always been God's plan that when man messed it all up, He would make all things new again. Now, in the Bible, we see that God does this through a series of covenants, all leading up to the cross of Christ. And now we live in this time period, this time between the cross, between Christ having already come and His return, which has not yet come. And so we live in the already and not yet. And we're not going to cover that in detail. But we're going to look at these covenant promises to see where God has directed this thing throughout history. So after the fall, the first covenant we see is the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9 and beginning in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to His sons with him. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will set it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we see this covenant is an unconditional covenant. It's not dependent upon anything that Noah or his descendants did or were to do. It's a covenant between God and Noah and his descendants and every living creature that was to come. He seals the covenant with a sign. What is the sign? It is a rainbow in the sky. And so when we see a rainbow, 
The Scriptures call us to remember God's faithfulness and God's grace. But also to remember God's hatred for sin. And He will not leave sin unpunished forever. Why the covenant in the first place? Because He destroyed the land with a flood because of the wickedness in the hearts of man. But He promises and seals it with the sign of the rainbow that He will never by flood again destroy the earth. The next time He destroys the earth, it will be by fire. Next is the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. In verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, we see an unconditional covenant. It's requiring nothing from Abraham. There's three major features of this covenant. One is the promise of a specific land. Secondly is a promise of descendants. God promises to make a great nation of Abraham. And third is a promise of blessing and redemption. God promises to bless Abraham and to bless all the families of the earth through him. We're flying through these. Next, the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus chapter 19. This is also known as the Sinai Covenant. The Israelites are at Mount Sinai, and God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And this goes on. He continues to work through this as he's laying out and establishing the law all the way through chapter 24. So the Mosaic Covenant is made between God and Israel. God reminds the people of their obligation to be obedient to His law. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth. Is mine. And what did the people do? They agreed. In verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right. So this covenant serves to set the people of God apart from all the other peoples of the world. A covenant directly tied to Israel's obedience to the law. If they obey, God gives them blessing. If they disobey, punishment follows. The Mosaic Covenant is the only conditional covenant that we will look at. God did not give this because it was by them keeping the law that they would be saved. He knew they would fail. He gave them the covenant... And in the covenant, He gave them the law to point them to the One who would keep the law perfectly for them. And so this covenant, the law in this covenant, is the schoolmaster that drives them to the cross of Christ. 
Most often when you hear of the Old Covenant, this is what we're talking about. This Mosaic Covenant. The law of God that He gave to Moses and the Israelites. Next we see the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Beginning in verse 10. God is speaking and He says, I will appoint a place for My people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over My people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. So this is an unconditional covenant once again between God and David. It rests solely on God's faithfulness to bring about His promise. God's promise is that the seed of David would become the forever king. He will be the Messiah. He will be the one that all the Scriptures are pointing to. And then we see the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So the old covenant required an obedience to the law, thus requiring sacrifices as a foreshadowing of the coming death of Christ because they were unable to keep the law from the very beginning. And the wages of sin is death. Something, someone had to die. The Old Covenant was written in stone. The New Covenant, he says, is written where? On the heart. So the condition of this covenant was that Jesus 
perfectly fulfilled the law that Israel could not keep, paying the wages of the sins of His people on the cross, establishing His reign as King and as Lord. So Christians today are under the new covenant. We love God's law as it's written on our hearts. We are made more into the likeness of Christ as we live to be obedient to the law because of the grace that God has given us. Because Christ has freed us up to do so in His perfect obedience on our behalf. But because of this covenant, we receive an eternal inheritance. Christ has died as a ransom to set us free from sin and the death that is required under the Old Covenant. So today, we have two categories of people in the world. You are either under the Old Covenant or you are under the New Covenant. In other words, the standard you are held to is either you fulfill God's law, didn't go so well for the Israelites, Or, Christ does so on your behalf. The better of the two options, I assure you. Remember Genesis 3.15. This is not plan B. The new covenant, the death, resurrection of Christ, is not plan B. This was God's plan from before the foundations of the earth. That's why we read about it in the very beginning. Now, through all of these covenants, God is at work through history to restore the broken relationship between Himself and mankind, ultimately making a way through the cross of Christ. All of God's promises, all of the covenants have come to do this. The single greatest act of restoration in all of redemptive history. It is the pivotal moment in the Bible of which all Scripture points to as the life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign of Jesus Christ. Look to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. One of my favorite passages of all the Bible. You see right away the first thing here in verse 17. He's speaking of new creation. There is restoration. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And he explains what that looks like. The old passes away, the new comes. As a work of God in Christ Jesus, reconciling the hearts of men and women from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation to himself, and giving those reconciled hearts the ministry of reconciliation. What does that look like? Verse 20 tells us, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making an appeal. God is making His appeal through His people that man be reconciled, be restored, be made new, become new creations in Christ. How is that possible? Verse 21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You hear me say it almost every week. So God the Father gave what was perfect, His Son, and He made Him to take on Himself imperfection, which is sin, that those reconciled would receive the rights and the privileges and the status and the inheritance of the holy, perfect, righteous Jesus Christ. Declared righteous, obtaining a right standing before God, reconciled and made new before God. Now what becomes evident in the Scriptures is that God is doing this work of restoration. He's making all things new through changed hearts. This is the key to all of this. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. All things created by Him, through Him, and for Him. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So through Him He reconciles to Himself how many things? All things. Again, how is He doing that? He's making peace by the blood of His cross. So all things are made new through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Making hearts new. Changing hearts. Then setting those with changed hearts on a mission to fulfill what historically has been called the cultural mandate. Now, what's important then for us is to understand what, as ministers of reconciliation, what we are to understand about our responsibility. What are we to do? And to know how something is to be restored is to know how it was designed, to know what it was created for in the very beginning. Remember, as we looked at Genesis, it is a book of beginning. 
Yes, the beginning of the world, but also the beginning of marriage, the beginning of work, the beginning of rest, the beginning of music, and many, many other gifts from God. So in short, Genesis provides us with a basic understanding of our relationship to the world all around us. We must ask ourselves as Christians, as those who are reconciled to God, those who have been given new hearts, new affections, and a mandate to be ministers of reconciliation, what are we supposed to do while we're here? Well, he told us in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, he said, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These are our marching orders. This is the cultural mandate. Before the fall, God gives dominion to man over all of creation. The charge is given again to Noah and his descendants after the fall. So this shows us that the presence of sin does not remove this cultural mandate. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible teaches us that creation is fallen and is groaning in the pains of childbirth. This is the result of sin. Now, hear this rightly. Not sin itself. The Bible always defines sins in terms of disobedience to God's law. So sin itself is not found in the material world. Or as part of the material world. We're not Gnostics. We do not believe that material things in and of themselves are sinful or evil. But rather how we use those things to transgress God's law, may be an act of sinfulness. I gave you a few examples earlier. One of them being, is eating a sin? No. But can it be? Yes, absolutely. So, since eating can be done in a way that is sinful, that puts food on a level completely other than where it was intended. Does that make food in and of itself sinful? No, of course not. And so we need to understand that about the created world. The cultural mandate is nothing more or less than mankind's obligation that we would be culturally responsible. So mission is not looking at things in the material world and saying, this is good, that is sin but rather looking through the lens at culture asking, is this thing or is this institution or is this sector of society being utilized in a way that honors God? Or is it being used in a way that promotes sin and disobedience to God? If it's utilized in sinful ways, then the Christian's obligation as a minister of reconciliation is to restore responsibly to a place that honors God and looks more like Genesis 1 and 2 instead of Genesis 3 and following. How? Well, we understand at the heart of this responsibility, of course, is the Gospel. It is the work of Christ to transform hearts and lives and utilizing His people as a means to bring about that great end. So I know you're thinking, what does all of this mean for me in the day-to-day? 
We'll address that and we'll be done. This really is a working out of what we have made our mission statement as a church. Ephesus Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. So that part of it, to love our neighbors and to see transformed lives. This is what we are about This means we cannot be satisfied with a faith that lives most vibrantly in abstract theological concepts and the ease of Sunday morning services. Listen, we cannot be satisfied with a Christianity that features episodic moments of ministry while otherwise is shaped by the values of the world. We cannot be satisfied by a Christianity that simply fills another slot in an all-too-busy schedule already. We cannot be satisfied with a Christianity that allows us to live at the center of our own world. We cannot be satisfied with a Christianity that does not live out the truths that we sing and does not apply the biblical exhortations that we have heard. Self-righteous, self-satisfied, and externalistic spirituality is dangerous and it must be resisted. It's not a byproduct of true conversion. It flows from the man-centeredness of worldly thinking. It's the house of self all dressed up to look like the house of God. This is what makes it so dangerous. It has an amazing ability to look and feel like the real thing, just like we talked about last week. And so when God draws us to Himself, He's not calling us to develop some separate dimension of our lives called spirituality. No, He's calling us to offer every aspect of every dimension of our lives to Him. Living as if He is truly the center of everything we are and everything that we have. True spirituality is not about doing a bunch of new things. That will happen, but that's not what it's all about. True spirituality is about doing everything we do with a new purpose. And because of this new purpose, we do it in a new way. In a way that has an eye on restoration. Restoration of the hearts of men. The institutions we live and work in and around. The land that we steward. The art that we consume. The materials that we use. Fulfilling this cultural mandate as one who lives all of life devoted to Christ. Not just the easy parts of Sunday morning and Wednesday night. So in this way... The grace of Christ actually restores to me my humanity. By this, in practical, tangible ways, my life ought to demonstrate devotion to God and to self-sacrificing love unto others. And if it's not, I am living neither in authentic Christianity nor in true humanity, because it's not how I was created to live for myself. True spirituality is inseparable from the cultural mandate and the stuff of our daily life. And it is inseparable from true humanity. 
So what in the end, what is the end of all of this? Where does all of this end up? Well, God tells us at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. This is where we will end. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. For those who reject, mock, and kick against God, the end is destruction. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, the end is a great and glorious beginning. All things are made new. It is a return to the perfection, a restoration to the perfection of the garden. Now, a city of the new heaven and the new earth dwelling with Christ forever. That, my friends, is worth living for. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are at work to make all things new. We pray, God, that You would give us greater desires to see You as the ultimate treasure to desire in this world that we would strive for You, that we would long for You, and that we would seek to see You at work in every sector of our lives and not relegated to Sunday morning or Wednesday night or the times when we do spiritual things on our own. But rather, God, that we would embrace this cultural mandate that we would embrace our mission to love our neighbors. And in doing so, to see You do a great work that we would see transformed lives. And through hearts being transformed, that You are bringing about greater glory to Yourself as creation is all restored. We long for the great day when all things will be made new. When Your glory will shine 
and there will be no need for the Son. Father, we long to have every tear wiped away, every pain gone, but we long most of all to see Christ exalted, to be with Christ, to worship Him forever and ever and ever in every aspect of our lives perfectly. Lord, grant that to us. Grant us a taste of that in this life that we could live to make You known, to glorify You in all that we do, that You would be glorified and we would receive an abundance of joy. In Jesus' name, Amen.